we're going to be in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and we're going to look at those last few verses, verses 46 through 54. So that's what, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 verses we're going to, Lord willing, cover this morning. I've titled the message today, Jesus Heals a Nobleman's Son. Jesus Heals a Nobleman's Son. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you turn there, please. John 4, starting with verse 46. Here the Bible says, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum, where he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee. He went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the reading of your word this morning. I pray that you help us preach. Lord, I pray that we remember these prayer requests this morning. You know each one, and God, what the need is. And we just trust in you, Lord, help us. But God, help us keep our thoughts and minds on the message today. May your word go out and do a mighty work in our hearts. And we'll give you the honor and praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we pick up here in this uh, sermon series in John, looking at these last verses. Uh, Jesus is, uh, where John says here, it's his second miracle that Jesus did. And we're going to discuss that there probably around the second to last verse. We'll, we'll talk about that particular part. But uh, Jesus has now made it from Jerusalem. If you remember previously to this, he had been into Jerusalem for the Passover. And he left there to go back into Galilee because of the pressure that was about to be put on him from the Pharisees. And so Jesus leaves that area. Remember him and John the Baptist both were over there. The disciples were baptizing. John the Baptist was baptizing. A lot of questions started coming from the religious crowd. And Jesus knew what was about to happen. If he stood, stood, uh, stayed around much longer, they would, it would start the pressure. They would be wanting, of course, to be uh, bringing him in, questioning, put him on trial and all those things. And it wasn't that time yet. And so that, that was in the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so he leaves the area of Judea to go into Galilee, but then he said, I must needs first go through Samaria. And so he stops in Samaria, Samaria, and we know he met that woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, who had five husbands and was living with a man now that wasn't her husband. And Jesus told her everything that he knew about her and, and everything about her. And uh, because of what he said to her and met her, she was saved. But she went into the city and told everyone in the city what Jesus had done. And the whole city comes out to meet Jesus. And they ask him to stay there with them. And uh, so he does. For two days, he remains in Samaria teaching them. And they believe because, the Bible said, because of his word. 
Now that's a very important thing to remember when it comes to faith. Genuine faith in the Lord Jesus is through his word. It's through his word. That's where our faith comes from. And so uh, he leaves the area of Samaria. He goes over into his, his home place in Galilee, stops first there in Nazareth, and they, they accept him at that point, at that time, uh, because of all the miracles that he had been doing and, and things they had been seeing him do. And now he traveled into Cana, Cana of Galilee. Now, if you recall, this is where Jesus performed his first, first recorded earthly miracle in his ministry, his first recorded one by, by John and the other writers, where he turned water into wine. He was at that wedding feast. His mother was there, and she comes to him, and she says they've ran out of, of wine. And so Jesus tells them to get the water pots, and the next thing you know, he turns that water into wine. And so John makes specific mention of that miracle and, of course, this miracle as well. Now, the Gospel of John is the only gospel that, that gives the account of this healing of the nobleman's son. Uh, none of the other gospels mention it. There are very similar uh, mentions there, and I believe it's Matthew and Luke, where they both mention Jesus healing a centurion's servant. And, uh, of course, we remember that, that uh, account. But that's not the same account. Some people believe it is, but it's not. That's a servant. That was a Gentile. This is a Jewish man, and he's healing his son. And so two different accounts in those. But by this time, Jesus' popularity has really grown. Now, we hate to use terms like popular when it comes to Jesus uh, because we know who he is. We follow him. We're his uh, disciples. We're his sheep, and we follow Jesus. We don't look at him as someone to be popularized, but he's someone to follow and to trust in and to call him Lord. But if you look at it in the world's terms and the world's ideas, he's very popular at this point. His ministry had just began. Uh, the word has gotten out about the things he's doing, the things he's saying, the miracles, and all this. And people are now following him around, keeping up with it. Uh, they didn't have the luxuries we have today of like the internet and, and mobile phones and text and emails and uh, the news and all this. So they had to get their news secondhand. Someone had to tell them, the word of mouth. So when Jesus went from one place to the other, somebody was running ahead of him and telling people, Jesus is coming this way. And then people would get excited, and they all come out you know, to the city to, to see him. And so we can't even understand what that must have been like. I mean, that, that was just uh, something. But Jesus, his, uh, people have known him now all around the area. And, of course, the people in Cana would remember when he was there at that wedding feast and performed that miracle. That was probably the talk of the town for quite some time. And so they were probably looking forward to seeing him again, coming in. And uh, so one of those people that the Bible talks about is this man from Capernaum, whom the Bible calls a certain nobleman, a nobleman. Now, that's a word that we don't use very often. I've never used it outside of the Bible. Have you ever called someone a nobleman? Of course not, because it's a Greek term which means a royal official. That's what that nobleman means. He's a royal official. He's a Herodian. He works for Herod. Herod is the king, the tetriarch of Galilee. And so this man works for the king. He's a nobleman. He's a royal official. We don't know his specific duties, what he did. He could have done many things. But he's an important man, very high up in, in the, in the uh, whatever the royal uh, kingdom. 
And so he would give service to the king, and the king that time, of that time was Herod, as we mentioned, the Tetrarch. He's the same Herod who had John the Baptist arrested and then eventually beheaded. So it's, it's that guy. Um, and so the nobleman works for him. And the nobleman has a big problem. The Bible tells us there uh, he's so desperate to find a solution because his son was sick at Capernaum. So he's left his hometown of Capernaum, which is 20 miles away, and traveled the distance to get to Cana, where Jesus is at. He's obviously heard Jesus is in the area. Uh, we don't know who told him, but uh, word has gotten out. Just like I said, Jesus is so popular, people are telling others, and they're going around following him. Look at verse 47, back in our text. It says, When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. How wonderful it must have been for this nobleman to hear about Jesus. Jesus is passing through, and he's only going to be 20 miles from where he lives. Now, 20 miles in that day is a long ways. 20 miles for us, we can get there in, what, 15, 20 minutes? It don't take us long to get 20 miles away. Uh, my work, where I work, is about 34 miles away. It takes me 48 minutes because of traffic. If it wasn't for traffic, it'd be about 35 minutes. But we can get place from place to place in just a matter of minutes. In that day, that's a big undertaking, 20 miles and we know he was there. Uh, it took him all day. He stayed a whole day because he didn't see those his servants coming till the next day. And he was going back home. And so he'd been there all day. We don't know if he walked all night to get there to meet Jesus that day or, or what. But it was a, a pretty big thing. And so he had obviously either personally saw Jesus perform miracles or he heard someone talking about it. Either way, he believes... He has enough faith that this man, Jesus, can heal his son. We know that much. He has some faith. It may not be the faith, a saving faith at this point, but it's faith enough to believe that Jesus has the power to heal. And so, you know, there's a lot of people. He's desperate. There's a lot of people in this world today that are desperate. They're desperate for a lot of things. We talked about there, you know, in prayer requests about people, you know, desperate. They're in, in bad situations. Well, the problem is the way that most people look at problems today, desperate problems, is they look toward the world for, for a solution. They look for a fleshly solution, uh, one that can, can be in their grasp, one that they can uh, see, feel, touch, something someone can tell. You know, they will turn to means like drugs. They, if they get in a problem, they think, you know, this is going to solve my problem. I can just get high. Or they'll turn to alcohol. I'll just get drunk and drink this off my mind. Uh, there's other things that people turn to. Sinful relationships. You know, someone thinks they're in a, in a bad place and they'll, they'll seek out a sinful relationship. People will go to psychiatrists. And I, I don't know anything about psychiatrists. Uh, maybe that, that's an okay thing, but everything I've ever heard about a psychiatrist has been crazy. They'll go to fortune tellers. They'll be down on their luck and they say, I need to know what's going to happen. So they'll go to someone that can tell their fortune, they'll turn to crime. People today will turn to crime to get themselves, they think, to get themselves out of a desperate situation. And uh, listen, they'll even some people will turn to suicide, thinking that's their only way out. They're in such a state, such a desperate place, that if they'll just kill themselves, everything will be better. Well, 
unfortunately, none of those things are better. None of those things are what people need. They're not the answer. The greatest solution for the world's most desperate problems is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the number one thing that people need in their life. It don't matter what it is. Sure, you may not see money falling in because you got saved. That, that's not that's not salvation. That's not faith. And so we don't turn to Jesus as a um, what a band aid or a genie in a bottle. A lot of people will think, well, okay, I tried all this and. Uh, one time somebody had on church sign, try Jesus, give Jesus a try. You don't give Jesus a try. You accept him as your savior. You receive him as such. You believe in him, but you don't just try him. He's not something that you, you know, try out and then give back. <laughs> and so people today need to realize that Jesus is the answer that they're looking for. Uh, we need to first make sure that we are spiritually in the right place before anything else can happen. And so the Bible says the nobleman's son was at the point of death. And I'm sure the nobleman being in the royal household had to his uh, disposal any doctors that he wanted. I'm sure they had enough money to go out and pay specialists. I don't know the specialists of that day. Maybe they had them. <laughs> but I'm sure that he's turned to everything and everyone that could possibly help and he finally understands there's no one that can help except this man, Jesus, whom I've heard about. This man who can perform miracles, and they say he's been sent by God. And so I'm going to him. And uh, listen, that's how we must approach Jesus. The, the nobleman has to humble himself. He has to realize that he can't do this on his own. No one else can do it for him. He has to humble himself and come to Jesus in humility, and ask him, would you would you heal my son? That's the way we must approach Jesus. We don't come to Jesus through pride. There's nothing that we can come to him in some kind of prideful way. We don't make demands of Jesus. I've heard of some of these people that preach this name it and claim it garbage. That is not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say name it and claim it. We don't make demands upon God. We don't tell Jesus what to do. We humbly approach him in humility we request him of things if it's in his will. That's how we should ask for things from God. God, may it be your will. This is my desire. God, you know my heart. But if it be your will, would you please do this? And so we approach him in humility. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, he's talking to the prideful Pharisees. And he was having these discussions. These men were supposedly the, the great or religious men of that day. They should have been as close to God as anyone of that day, but yet they were so far away from him, they didn't even know who he was. And Jesus is speaking with them. They're full of pride. And in Matthew 23 and 11, he says, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. And so these men, these Pharisees, we all know the Bible describes them, how they stood in the street corners and enlarged the, the borders of their garments and they prayed out loud, you know, and the, you remember the one that went to the temple to pray and you say, I'm glad I'm not as these other men, this publican, you know. That's the kind of prideful man that Jesus is speaking to here. He says, look, the greatest among you will be a servant. And also the disciples. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus and they were always asking really foolish questions and they come to him and say who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom 
You know, we had James and John competing to see who was going to sit on the right hand and the left, and his mother, their mother, even their own mother, come wanting to know. And so they're asking Jesus all this, and this is what he said, Matthew 18 and 3. He said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. And so Jesus just pointed out blank told him, he said, you've got to humble yourself. You think you're going to be great in the kingdom? You've got to be like one of these little children. They don't have motives. They don't have some kind of uh, thing going on in the back of their mind to see how high their position can be or who's going to be sitting on my right hand. They could care less about that. They come to me just as little children, just innocent. And that's the way you've got to be. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to be that way. Now, no doubt, the world probably told the nobleman, look, it's hopeless to think that your son's going to survive this. He is almost dead. I mean, look at him. He's not going to make it. He's, he's running such a fever, and they probably didn't have a thermometer like we had today. And so they couldn't tell if he was running 105 degree temperature, but they knew it was so bad, he was probably unresponsive. Uh, he's running a fever. He's near death, and everyone's gave up on him, I'm sure. And they're probably telling the nobleman, you might as well just face the facts. Your boy's going to die. You know, get over it. You know, that's, that's the way they did Jairus. Remember Jairus come to Jesus asking him to heal his daughter? And then the woman with the issue of blood came along and interrupted things, and then Jesus went with him. When Jesus went to his house, people were already starting the funeral. There were people, minstrels, playing music for the funeral. People wailing. They had women out there who were wailing for the funeral. And Jesus had run people out of the room because of their disbelief that he could heal her. And so he goes in there, clears everybody out, and, and he says, she's only asleep. You remember? She got up. He offered her something to eat. And she, she, uh, Jesus healed her. Well, the nobleman is in a very similar situation here. I'm sure everyone has already gave up. They're probably already picking out his cemetery plot. And uh, probably got all the, the music people gathered together saying, now it's going to happen any time. And they buried people the same day back then. It wasn't like we do. You know, we, uh, we take sometimes weeks <laughs> for everything. But uh, back in that day, you died, and then they wrapped you up, and they, they buried you, put you in a tomb. <clears throat> and so they were probably getting prepared for that. And look at verse 48. Back in our text, John 4 and 48. Then said Jesus unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. <laughs> this, this statement right here, now, some people have a lot of problems with this because it almost seems mean-spirited that Jesus says this. Um, the, what Jesus is doing, he's giving this man a mild rebuke. But he's not only speaking to the man here, he's addressing the whole crowd. He's addressing everyone in Galilee there. Uh, these people that, that's the way they were. They wanted to see some kind of miracle. They want to see a sign. They want to see a wonder. They weren't just happy with hearing the words. They wanted to see something happen. And so Jesus, he calls them out on it. He says, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, when he says believe, he's speaking toward a faith type of belief in the Messiah himself. But they're wanting to see some kind of miracle performed. He's been performing miracles, and certainly they didn't have the Word of God like we have. They had the books of Moses and, and the Psalms and the, the prophets, but they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't know 
what we know about the Lord, but they want to see a miracle. And, you know, people are no different today. People today are wanting to feel or see or experience something before they want to believe in Jesus. Uh, you know, I, you, you'd be amazed how many people have come to me and said, Brother Byron, I just don't know if I've been saved or not because when I went down there and uh, prayed and accepted Jesus as my Savior, I didn't feel anything. You see, they've heard so many testimonies from people that give all these real big flamboyant testimonies. And, you know, I'm thankful if they're true. But I believe some people embellish some things. And they're telling people things, you know, like, oh, yeah, it's just like birds singing and all this stuff like that. Well, listen, a lot of people today are expecting fireworks uh, when they get saved. And so then they, they go all their life wondering if they truly got saved because they didn't feel something. Well, so-and-so told me that their heart felt like it was going to be out of the chest. Well, that's the way mine felt when I was saved. My heart felt like it was going to come out of the chest, but that don't mean yours is. Uh, but the Bible does not tell us that our salvation is going to have anything like that. No sign, you know, outside physical sign that you've been saved. What the Bible does say is in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the Bible is very clear that salvation is based only on faith in Christ and Christ alone. It's not based on your feelings. It's not based on uh, some sound. It's not based upon some miracle. Now, it's a miracle you got saved. Every, every salvation is a little mini miracle in itself. But it doesn't rely upon anything. We're not looking for some kind of outside explosion, birds singing, bells ringing, uh, anything like that. If, if that's what you're concerned about, then you're concerned about the wrong thing. What you need to be concerned about is have you received Christ as your Savior? Have you believed Him with all of your heart? Have you believed the finished work of Christ on the cross that He came here? He died for you. He was buried and He rose again in three days and now He ascended up to the Father and sits on the right hand to make intercession for us. That's what we need to uh, be concerned about. Alright, now look at verse 49. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Now, notice he addresses Jesus as sir right here. Now, that word sir has been translated from a Greek word, kurios. Does anybody know what kurios is? It's the supreme authority. That's what that means, the supreme authority. The same word, kurios, is translated Lord over 700 times in the New Testament. Here it's translated as sir, but it's a showing of the respect that the nobleman has for Christ. Now, is he calling him Lord as in my Savior? No. He's calling him Lord as I believe that you're a great man of God. I believe you're a healer. I believe that you can do this. He has that respect for him. Now, again, remember his position. He's of the royal household. He could have came with, with soldiers and said, you're coming with us. You're going to go heal my son because I hear that you can do things like that. You know? And that's how a lot of people today would have done. I believe who was it, Naaman, uh, that uh, go up, goes out and uh, you know the dip. The the Lord told him to go and tell him that to dip what seven times in the in the, uh, the water and stuff. Anyway, uh, that's another message. But uh, here, this nobleman he addresses the Lord as as Sir. It's uh, Kurios, you know, my supreme authority. 
I, I believe you can do this. Great respect. He's desperate. He's desperate, and he pleads for Jesus to come. So he has just enough faith to believe that Jesus can heal his son. However, he feels that Jesus has to come to his house to do it. He thinks, he's, remember, he's still looking for a sign and a wonder. He wants this man, Jesus, I'm sure, to go to his son, put his hands on him, uh, do something. He wants him to physically be there because he thinks that's how he's got to do it. It's not even entered his mind that Jesus can simply speak a word and heal his son. So he, he has some faith. It's just not saving type faith quite yet. Look at verse 50. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. I like this part. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. So, look, despite the fact that Jesus gave the nobleman a mild rebuke about, you know, expecting signs and wonders, despite that fact, he still intended to heal his son. And that's the way Jesus often works. He has to first humble us. He's got to put us in our place. He's got to point out our sin, show us where we're wrong, and then Jesus comes and he takes us right in. That's what he's done with, with the nobleman here. Uh, he gave him rebuke, pointed out his sins, his flaws. He's humbled him, and look what happened. As a result, after Jesus spoke those words, the Bible says, and the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him and went his way. So immediately he believes because of his word, his word. Not because of a sign, not because of a miracle, but because of what he heard, the words of Jesus. So Jesus tells the man, go thy way, thy son liveth. In other words, I'm not going to Capernaum. I'm staying right here, but I'm already healed your son right now. I've done it. And upon hearing that, the nobleman believed. And that is an example of true faith, simply believing in the word of the Lord. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Not by sight. Hebrews 11 and 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Not things you have seen. Not some miracle that you've seen performed. Not some sign. Not some kind of wonder. But because, why? It says, You've not seen it. The evidence of things not seen. First Peter 1, 7 through 9, the Bible says that the trial of your faith being more, much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Listen to this, verse 8. Whom having not seen, ye love. And whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. I love that part right there. And Peter, you know, he's talking to that persecuted church. And they were, I mean, it was a horrible time for Christians in that day. Their families had, had uh, disowned them. Uh, the government was after them. They were in a bad way. Peter trying to give them encouragement. He says, listen, whom having not seen, you love. They never saw Jesus, but they loved him. And whom though now you seem not, yet believing. They had seen, yet they believed. And he says, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why would they have joy in such a time as that? 
because they had the joy of Christ in their heart. Because even without seeing him, they believed in him. And they believed that everything that he said would happen. I've never seen Jesus with my eyes, and you have not either. You've seen the wonderful creation out there that he created, but you've never seen Jesus physically with your eyes. I didn't see him hanging on a cross. I didn't see the soldiers nail his hands or his feet. I didn't see him put that crown of thorns on his head or beat him mercilessly. I didn't see any of that stuff. I didn't see him bury him in a, in a borrowed tomb. I didn't see him rise up out of there, and I did not see him ascend into heaven. And may I say to you today that no other Christian has either for the last 2,000 years. Those last people that watched him ascend up into heaven are the last one that physically saw Jesus here on this earth as he ascended. We've not seen him, yet we believe in him. I've not seen him, but I believe. The reason I believe is because I have faith of what God's word says. It wasn't because I saw a miracle. It wasn't because I saw somebody else got saved or, or I heard of something like that. No, I, I heard it from God's word. God's word said The nobleman believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. The man believed. All right, let's finish up here. Verses 51 through 53 first. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed and his whole house. So now we see that not only did the nobleman believe that Jesus could heal his son, but now he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the saving faith that he has now. He obviously has also told everyone else in his house about Jesus. He's already been a witness. And they too believed in Jesus. That's what the Bible says. And himself believed and his whole house. How would his whole house believe unless he told them? And so he has shared Jesus with them. And so we see the results of true salvation. One believer telling another about Jesus, and they also believed and were saved, and that's how the gospel is shared, by us telling others. I told this the other day, and I think it's worth telling again. Uh, in the years I've been in the ministry, I've had several people come to me and say, Brother Byron, I, I just don't share my testimony with other people because it's just not exciting. Now, some said, uh, similar to me, you know, I was saved very young, Hadn't really done anything bad, you know, what you would consider bad. I know we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, you know, even if, if it was a lie or whatever it was, you sinned enough to go to hell. But uh, people have come to me and said, I just don't have one of these great testimonies like I've heard other people have. You know, they'll, they'll name off a certain person like this guy. You know, I heard him and wow, you know, it's really powerful. And so they'll say, I just, I don't want to give my testimony because, you know, it's boring. <laughs> uh Look, um, I'm sure everybody's here has heard a testimony about a man here in Knoxville, um, Robert Gibson. And Robert Gibson, uh, at 17 years old, murdered someone. He was sent to Brushy Mountain Prison for 99 years. At 18 years old, he entered Brushy Mountain and uh, was served a 99-year prison sentence. Well, while he was in there, and that was back in, uh, I believe it was 1976 is when he went into prison uh, for 90, 90 years. 
1982, he was also part of a um, uh, an inner prison gang thing where they someone had slipped a gun into the prison, and he, along with some other men, murdered a bunch of prisoners, uh, black men, in their cells, uh, shot them to death. And that was, uh, you know, there in 1980, uh, 1982. You can still pull up the new Sentinel. has the whole archives about all that. And uh, so they took guards hostage and then and shot prisoners in their cells. And in 1988, somebody shared the gospel with him. And he was released from prison in 1999, but he got saved in 1988. He still had to spend some more time and... Uh, he was a model uh, prisoner, and uh, he was able to get out. Now, I believe he did have to go back because of some kind of domestic dispute with his wife, where he yelled at her and they accused him of assaulting her or something. He had to go back and serve some more time. But he was a saved man and still was a model prisoner. Well, now he has been called to preach. He goes around and he preaches, and you know um, he gives his testimony. And it's a powerful testimony. And... Um, I'm not trying to take anything away from someone like that that has such a testimony. But I do want to say this. It doesn't matter if you were six years old, you'd not done anything worse than uh, telling a, a white lie to your mom or dad because of something you did or, or whatever it was. It don't matter if it was that was all you've done. If you got saved, your testimony is just as important as someone that has one, such as this man, uh, Robert Gibson. Because we all have a testimony of what God has done for us. Uh, like I said, Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But we're all saved the same exact way by the same exact Lord. The Lord Jesus is our only means for salvation. So we all get saved the same exact way. And so all of our testimonies are important. You, what you may think is boring or unimportant may be just the thing someone else needs to hear. So, don't ever be ashamed of giving your testimony. This man has testified about what Jesus has done. Because of his testimony, his whole household gets saved. They believe too. All right, verse 54, and we'll be finished. This is, again, the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. All right. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this that we were going to talk about this just a little bit. The second miracle, John says here, uh, that Jesus did. Now, the first one we know he recorded was the, the turning the water into wine in the same place here. So, this verse, some people get kind of confused on. And they say, well, the Bible has a contradiction because we know he, he performed other miracles in between those two. Um, in fact, in, in the Gospel of John, John 2 and 23 the Bible says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. That was all before this event of the nobleman's son. All that happened before this. And here, John's already wrote down when, he, when they saw the miracles which he did. Yeah, Not singular, plural. Miracles. He's, he's performed other miracles. Uh, so, I think here in chapter 4, John is referring to the miracles that Jesus performed in that specific place of Cana of Galilee. I believe that's what he, he's talking about. I may be totally wrong. Uh, but, I'm, just, I'm telling you, that's the way that I can see this. That's the way I line it up. I've studied and studied and studied on this and meditated and prayed about it and everything else. And that's the only conclusion that I have about it. 
is that John's referring to the second miracle in that area, that place that he's in. Uh, John 20 and verses 30 through 31 says this, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So we're not, we shouldn't really get caught up in oh, that. I can't add that up. It doesn't make sense. It does not compute. You know, we shouldn't get concerned about that. What we need to be concerned about is that these things were written so that we can believe. We can believe. The very last verse in the Gospel of John says this in John twenty one twenty five, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, every one. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. And so, you know, uh, whether this was whatever, like I said, I believe it's the second miracle that he performed in that area. So you study it for your own and and make up your own mind, but uh, that's the way I see it. And so I believe what we can take from this is how the Lord has taken this man who had some bit of faith. He had a little faith, not saving faith, really. But faith in who Jesus was and what he was doing and all that. He takes a man who most of the time probably would have been very uh, different, not as humble. uh, Because that was not one of the, um, really the way a man like in his position would be. Not a humble man. A nobleman would have been someone who would have been looked up to, who would have demanded things, who would have got things done. And most of them probably would have demanded things from Jesus instead of coming and pleading to him in humility. And so we can see how Jesus can take a man like this, humble him, point out his sin, and still love him and save him. And uh, just through his word, this man has believed. And that's how all believers must believe is through his word. It's from the word of God. You didn't have any other form of knowing about Jesus if we did not have his word. Sure, your parents, your grandparents and stuff could have told you about Jesus, but the only way they could tell you about it is because of his word. That's where they got it from. And that's how everyone hears about Jesus, is through his, his word. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you today. We thank you for the truths in your word. We thank you so much that we are able to be saved simply by the words that you have given us. God, your words, we know they're powerful, they're alive. And Lord, we believe every one of them. God, I thank you for the example of the nobleman and how we can see ourselves in that. And God, I'm praying today for that individual today or, or several, whoever it may be, God, and maybe listen to this over the internet, God, that has never been saved. God, maybe you're dealing with their heart. Maybe they're under conviction. Lord, maybe they've been resisting. Lord, maybe they can't humble themselves. Whatever it may be, we're praying today that you intervene, God, that you, through your Holy Spirit, God, just convict their hearts, show them their need to be saved today. Lord, help us as a church to be a shining light, to always be in your will and in your word, and may we always give you praise, honor, and glory for everything, for it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, and amen. All right, now, don't forget that uh, our homecoming is the first Sunday in September. I don't know what date that is. Anybody got a calendar on them? I don't know. But it's the first Sunday in September. We'll be having our, it's our fourth homecoming. 
we uh, started in 2019 here at Porchlight, and uh, the Lord's Lord's been good, and uh, we've had a great time. Uh, so be looking for homecoming. We'll be eating something good. I don't know what we're having yet, but uh, it'll be good. All right. Don't forget the prayer requests that we we had at the beginning of the service, and are all hearts and minds clear? All right. Good Lord's will in the creek don't rise. We'll see you next time. <laughs>